And I'm Tiff, and we're your Curious Cousins. Where we talk about everything kooky and spooky in the state of Oklahoma. Welcome to episode 59. Welcome. How are you? I've been better. <laughs> How are you? Oh, um, well, we've just been having some microphone drama again. Me this time. Yes. And then uh, my Mac doesn't want to recognize two microphones. Neither does mine. And so we tried to go back to my old PC and... It worked for a minute. (laughs) It worked for a minute and then it stopped working again. So um, it's just time for some new equipment and it's just stressful. Of course we need... the wrong timing. We need new equipment right before Christmas. Yeah. Typical. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. fine. It's just, you know, it's just a dumpster fire over here. But we still love you guys, and we are ready to get the show on the road. Yes, we are. So, I don't think we really have any business except for Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, it's coming up. Yes, yes. It's the week before Thanksgiving. Happy belated Veterans Day. Yes, thank you to all our veterans who served. We are so thankful. We come from a thick family of veterans, for sure. Absolutely. And uh, and then Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So this week, we are doing um, a little bit of history. Yes. And it's not super dark, but it's kind of dark, because it was a very dark time, I think, in Oklahoma history. But to give us a little background information, or I guess I'm just going to come out, we're covering the Dust Bowl. Yeah. And how this all came about that we decided to cover it is my students started studying Earth systems and kind of the jumping off point or Mm -hmm. the, you know, the grab it and get them excited for it is it mentions the Dust Bowl. And, uh, you know... 10, 11 year olds, they really haven't learned about the Dust Bowl. Like they may have heard about it in uh-huh. passing, but they don't really have any background knowledge of it because, right. you know, in fifth grade, they, we start with, you know, the first colonies right. and then the, the big thing is the Revolutionary War and we end yeah. like with Western exp- Westward Expansion. So the Dust Bowl doesn't even come close to any <laughs> of that. And so... Uh, we started kind of talking about it and then come to find out, you know, when I started talking to him and I was like, well, my grandmother was kind of born in the middle of it and, you know, she's still alive and there's lots of people today who's still alive who mm-hmm. f- were really a part of this, who lived and, uh, you know, the after effects were felt for several years afterwards right. and so they were all really kind of impressed to know that there are people out there and that this happened in our state and mm-hmm. so I thought it would be interesting if we covered it because it was kind of a dark period for our own state. It really was and I knew, I like, I know about the Dust Bowl, I've learned about it, mm-hmm, I've read mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. it, but like digging deeper, there's so much that I feel like... I didn't know. Exactly. Like, That's, it, I found out a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Like, first and foremost, it did not cover the entire state of Oklahoma. Right. And, and I was led and, to believe that it did. Yeah. And maybe not the entire state, but, like, at least half. Exactly. Or at more least, than what yes. actually covered. Right. When it might have only covered maybe a fourth of it. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, so Jess, Jess is going to start us off with yeah. some geographical history. Yes. Exactly what you and I need. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, real quick, my sources that I used were The Dirty 30s, A History of the Dust Bowl by Howard Brinkley, Little Known Tales in Oklahoma History by Alton Pryor, The Dust Bowl from the National Drought Mitigation Center uh, from the Uni- University of Nebraska, Dust Bowl from Oklahoma Historical Society, and um, I did get some information of the Dust Bowl from Wikipedia. 
So I'm just going to give like a little intro real quick. So of all the droughts that have occurred in the United States, the drought of the 1930s is by far considered to be the, quote, drought of record um, for the nation. The Dust Bowl was the largest ecological disaster in the United States history, coinciding with the nation's worst economic crisis, the Great Depression of the 1930s. It's so insane that those, like, coincided with each other. Oh, yeah. The 1930s drought is often referred to as if it were only one event, but it was actually several distinct events happening in such rapid course that um, the affected regions were not able to recover sufficiently enough before another drought began. Uh, the term Dust Bowl was coined in 1935 when an AP reporter, Robert Geiger, used it to describe the drought-affected um, south-central United States when he witnessed the horrific storms while he was in Boise City, Oklahoma, known as Black Sunday. So getting into the geographic history. The term Dust Bowl originally referred to the geographical area affected by the dust. However, today it usually refers to the event itself. The term the Dirty 30s is Mm -hmm. also used. The drought and erosion of the Dust Bowl affected 100 million acres of land Mm -hmm. that centered on the Texas Panhandle, Oklahoma Panhandle, adjacent sections of New Mexico, Colorado, and Kansas. The Dust Bowl area lies mainly west of the 100th meridian on the high plains, characterized by plains that vary from rolling in the north to flat in the uh, Llano Escando, I think is how you say it, (laughs) Estacad, I don't know, I wrote out the pronunciation, and obviously I didn't say it correctly, Llano Estacado, there we go. Elevations range from uh, 2,500 feet in the east to 6,000 at the base of the Rocky Mountains. The area is semi-arid, getting less than 20 inches of rain annually. This rainfall supports the short grass prairie biome originally present in the area. The region is prone to extended drought, alternating with unusual precipitation of equivalent length. During the wet years, the rich soil provides abundant agricultural output, but crops fail during dry years. This region also suffers from high winds, and during early European and American exploration of the Great Plains, this region was actually thought to be unsuitable. Right. I remember reading that too. And to help encourage settlement and development of the plains uh, for agriculture, the federal government came up with the Homestead Act of 1862, offering settlers 160 acre plots. And um, with the end of the Civil War in 1865, the completion of the first transcontinental railroad in 1869 waves of migrants and immigrants reached the Great Plains and massively increased the acreage under cultivation. Uh, There would be more waves of people coming to the Great Plains that had been, you know, enticed by the federal government with the promise of more land um, at the beginning of the 20th century. The deceptively wet weather seemed to confirm that the quote-unquote formally semi-arid area would or could support large-scale agriculture. (laughs) 
At, <laughs> at the same time, technological improvements such as mechanized plowing and harvesting made it possible to operate large properties without increasing labor costs. The combined effects of World War One and the disruption of the uh, Russian Revolution, which decreased the supply of wheat and other commodity crops, increased agricultural prices. In other words, following the end of World War One, American farmers found themselves in the midst of an economic depression. Kugly enough, some of it was due to their own hard work because the more crops they produced, the lower the crop prices fell. This was great for consumers, mm -hmm. but bad for the farmers. Kooky fact! Given that in the 1920s, about 20% of Americans were farmers and just under half lived in rural areas, this impacted a large percentage of the nation. And by 1918, prices for many crops dropped by as much as two-thirds, leaving farmers with less money to feed their families and pay down debts for their land or farming equipment <laughs> purchased on credit when times were much better. Right. So wheat actually had a better price even after the war, unlike corn or cotton. In the 1920s, due to the low crop prices and high machinery costs, more submarginal lands were put into production. Farmers had also started to abandon soil conservation practices. And unfortunately mm -hmm. for farmers, the price of wheat was now on a steady decline in the mid-1920s. However, farmers continued to plant more and more wheat. Yeah. As the prices fell, the farmers believed that they needed to plant more so that they could sell more. <laughs> Who's going to buy it, though? <laughs> By increasing cultivation and the agricultural methods farmers were using during this time period, it created conditions for large-scale erosion under certain environmental conditions. So the widespread conversion of the land by deep plowing and other soil preparation methods to enable agriculture eliminated the native grasses that held the soil in place and helped retain moisture during dry periods, leaving loose topsoil. Cotton farmers were leaving bare fields during the winter when winds in the high plains are highest and would burn the stubble as a means to control weeds before planting, therefore depriving the soil or, of organic nutrients and service vegetation. So now that was kind of like a part one of our section. Right. So part two, I'm going to talk a little bit about the dust storms and the drought. So the summer of 1931, the rain stopped and the Great Plains became a very dry place. So this is basically, 1931 was kind of like the beginning of the Dust Bowl as we know it. Right. So the wheat fields withered, and with nothing to protect the loose layer of topsoil from the high winds, the wheat was blown away, and all that was left was bare, hard ground. I mentioned this earlier, but although the 1930s drought is often referred to as if it were one event, there were at least four distinct drought events that occurred uh, in 1930 to 1931, 1934, 1936, and again in 1939 into 1940. 
With no significant rainfall for the past year, dust storms began to form by 1932. In the beginning, these storms were just more of an, anno of an annoyance. The thick dust made it hard to see and everything was covered in dirt. So school was actually canceled because it was too hard for the kids to see clearly enough to get there. And just like their houses, everything inside the schoolhouse was covered in dust. Exactly. And dust is actually dirt, you know, same yes. thing. So here's a kooky fact. Eventually, the dust storms became such a normal everyday thing, schools would actually stay open and the children just did their best that they could to make it there. Yeah. Beginning on May 9th, 1934, a strong two-day dust storm removed massive amounts of Great Plain topsoil in one of the worst storms of the Dust Bowl. The dust blew all the way to Chicago, where they deposited 12 million pounds, that's 5,400 tons yeah. <laughs> of dust. Oh my gosh. Just two days later, the same storm reached cities to the east, like Cleveland, Buffalo, Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. That's insane. It's insane to think that. But well, when you think about it this day, like it can be in comparison. Remember, like this summer, there was those huge forest fires in Canada. Right. Yeah. And we were getting the effects of it here. Right. Well, and the crazy thing, too, is I didn't, I don't think I put it in here, but one winter, the storms were so bad it snowed like somewhere in the east mm -hmm. and it was like red. It was like red snow. Ooh, my gosh. You would because think the apocalypse the was coming. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, that's spooky. Yeah. Ooh, that's spooky. Ugh, I know. So as the black clouds intensified, some people took to stuffing towels and rags and doorways and around yes. windows to try to help keep the dust at bay. As the wind got more savage and the air remained hot, some people were hanging wet sheets on their porches at night to act as like a primitive uh, air conditioning yeah. system. Yeah. By the time morning came around, the sheets would be caked in mud. Mm hmm. It's insane. Dirt would be piled in doorways like snowdrifts and were so deep that the pile would be as high as the windowsills. Mm -hmm. There's and, some incredible pictures taken. Oh, man. In order, I know we won't have any trouble getting photos for this. <laughs> In order to get out the door, the front door, the people had to climb out the window and make their way through mounds of dirt just to get to the front door, and then they would have to dig it out. Inside the house, the dust was so thick that you would need a shovel to clear the floor. One survivor of the Dust Bowl said that the only area around her that was not covered in dust was where her head had covered the pillow at ooh, night. Ooh, 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 I, This is, I'm a person who doesn't like to get dirty, though. I know, so. I, ew. Margie Daniels, who lived through the Dust Bowl as a young girl in Hooker, Oklahoma, said, quote, Everything was full of dust. If you were cooking a meal, you'd end up with dust in your food, and you would fill it in your teeth. Oh. You'd start oh. to eat. And when you would drink water or something, Ew. you would bite down and you would always, it always felt like you had grit between your teeth. Ew, 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 ew. Can you imagine? Yes, because every, I've had dirt in my mouth. Every, every day. Every day, everything you put in your mouth was like that. Ugh, no. Ugh. <laughs> I know. With the storms continuing on, just surviving became the biggest challenge of all. Yeah. When cattle died from the dust, or when cattle died, uh, from the dust and were slaughtered, 
their stomachs would be filled with the black dirt that came from the skies. And along with their lungs, I'm sure, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, people became sick with what they called dust pneumonia. Yes, yes, As yes. their respiratory systems were struggling for a clean breath of air, which was nearly impossible to mm-hmm, find. Mm-hmm. Very few animals and plants could survive the dust, uh, making it hard to find food source. So, kooky fact. Despite all of these factors that I just mentioned about the dust pneumonia and the cattle... The Department of Health initially denied that the dust was a health risk. (laughs) Oh my gosh. In fact, it proclaimed that since the dust was coming from wide open spaces with no diseases. No, 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 no. Don't say it. Swallowing, quote, sterile dirt could harm no person of normal health. Good for you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. If you were healthy, you were fine. Right. But what does that say about the people who have respiratory problems? <laughs> I just could not. I was like, what? I read that and I was like, oh my goodness. Holy smokes. Gosh. So one thing I never thought about or equated with the Dust Bowl was how much it affected electricity. Huh. So the extremely dry air created a massive amount of static electricity. The static electricity in the air meant that simply hugging someone or shaking hands could knock a person over. And it it hurts bad enough, like, in the wintertime when somebody shocks you. Yeah. Like, just dragging their feet across the floor. Yeah. It could knock someone over. That's what it said. Oh, my gosh. It caused cars to stall because the ignition systems shorted out and would not start again until the storm passed. (laughs) People started dragging chains and wires under their vehicles to keep them grounded. Oh my god. Many people also started putting cloth on doorknobs and oven knobs to help prevent themselves from shocking their own <laughs> self. Yeah. Just the simple act of touching a water pump handle or grabbing a frying pan would result in a shock of electricity. Shock of your lifetime is what it sounds like. Right? If and and the other thing, if the dust hadn't already done it, the electricity also killed crops and gardens. So it was like this double whammy. It's just crazy. All right. So and a little bit of dust. A little, a little bit, bit of, of dust. dust. A little bit of dust. And, and people say God made dirt and dirt don't hurt. <laughs> Let's talk about the dust ball. <laughs> All right. clearly didn't live through that. So there is one storm in particular that I want to talk about. Okay. Okay, April 14th, 1935, also known as Black Black Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. So throughout the spring of 1935, the High Plains had been enduring dust storms for weeks. Many counties in Oklahoma, Texas, and Kansas did not see a day without dust for six straight weeks. The worst of these, quote, black blizzards, um happened on Sunday, April 14th, 1935. The day started out innocent enough. You could even call it pleasant under the circumstances. It was nice and sunny. However, as the day wore on, temperatures began to fall, and one source said that there was like a nervous energy in the air. Oh, gosh. All of a sudden, around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, on the Oklahoma Panhandle, 
a ginormous black cloud formed out on the horizon and it was moving quickly. Daylight literally turned darker than midnight due to a wall of black dust that engulfed the land. The black cloud moved rapidly toward the south and southeast across the state. This storm brought not only cooler temperatures, but was pushing a wall of black dust sustained by winds of approximately 40 miles per hour. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. The Oklahoma and Texas panhandles took the brunt of the storm, which some compare to a tsunami, except instead of water, it was dust. By 5.15 that night, the storm hit Boise City, Oklahoma, and by 7.20, it had made its way to Amarillo, Texas. The air was so thick with dust that people said they couldn't see five feet in front of them, and some even said that they couldn't even see their hands in front of their faces. I can't imagine that if they didn't think the apocalypse was coming, that at this point, they thought it was coming. They thought the second coming was With how big this storm yeah. was, I can't imagine the other parts of Oklahoma not having been affected right. by something. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Like, exactly. Um, let's see. For those caught out in the storm, they had little choice but to try and find shelter and wait it out. One source said that a couple, Ed and Ada Phillips, along with their six-year-old daughter, caught out in the massive black storm. They joined a group of other people who had found an abandoned two-room adobe hut and were trapped there for four hours. They said that they were afraid that if they left, they would suffocate. So the Amarillo newspaper reported that visibility was zero miles for 12 (laughs) minutes. Pauline Winkler Gray wrote for the Kansas Historical Society, and I want to read what she wrote really quick. Let me just get there. And this is from The Dirty 30s by Howard Brinkley, page 16. And it says, quote, even the birds were helpless in the turbulent onslaught Mm. and dipped and dived without benefit of wings as they as the wind propelled them. As the wall of dust and sand struck our house, the sun was instantly blotted out completely. Gravel particles clattered against the windows and pounded down on the roof. The floor shook with the impact of the wind and the rafters creaked threateningly. We stood in our living room in pitch blackness. Can you imagine? No, which is insane, which it's really funny because, not really funny, this is not funny at all, but it's almost like, we we talked about this at school today, that when the meteorite hit the earth and uh-huh. it blotted out the sun with the dust, like this was probably the equivalent to that. Right. But where it was, it happened, the impact was so great that it lasted a lot longer for the dinosaurs than it thankfully than it did for us, obviously. Mm-hmm. But still, I mean, it blots out the sun and, you know, your plant life was going to die anyways. And then your temperatures were going to start to cool and uh, it could have been a real problem for us. But I mean, for 12 minutes, they experienced what dinosaurs experienced as they started to die. And that's off. crazy and to, it's think insane about. to think about like that. And I can't imagine how scary that had Me to neither. have been because Me You've said it several times. Like, I don't know how they didn't think that the apocalypse was upon them. Right. And, I mean, 
for it to be daylight and then all of a sudden it's not it's not the winds i mean there's there's probably no insects at this time there's not really any animals and yeah and everything's covered with dust i mean at least with tornadoes they're over within minutes yeah and you kind of get a warning that it's coming you can tell that it's coming you can at least see it coming (laughs) yeah hear it here this wasn't so much anyway i mentioned this earlier Denver-based Associated Press reporter Robert E. Geiger happened to be in Boise City, Oklahoma that day. His story about Black Sunday marked the first appearance of the term, Dust Bowl. When the massive dust storm finally ended, it had moved twice as much dirt and debris as the workers moved when digging the Panama Canal. <laughs> That's, it's insane to think that nature did that. Right. Right. Wow. With winds that had gotten up to 60 miles per hour, 300 million tons of dry earth sailed across the Great Plains. Small wildlife was killed instantly. Larger animals suffocated within a few hours. People who could not find shelter had their lungs filled with dirt, their eyes blinded, and their skin sliced. Oh, I mean, I just remember as a child being out in the playground we had one of those playgrounds that uh all the equipment was surrounded by sand right and when it was windy oh and you had shorts on it hurt so bad but can you imagine and that's probably it only hit me at maybe like 10 or 15 miles per hour not 60 miles per hour i mean yeah that's like being sandblasted take your skin right off right but that's that's what I have for part two. So oh my goodness. Part three, tip, take it well, away. Well, I'm going to cover uh, human displacement. So you did a great job of <laughs> telling us the geographic history, kind of putting that into perspective for us, and at least the dust storms and the drought and, like, what Thank it you. did. So I wanted to kind of touch on, like, all right, so now this is happening. What are we humans doing? Right. So first and foremost... The Dust Bowl intensified the Great Depression. We kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier. It is so crazy that these two things coincided with each other. Like, it couldn't have happened at a worse time in history. Right. By 1935, many families were forced to leave the affected areas in order to save themselves Mm -hmm. uh, due to not only the lack of the drought, but they had no jobs either. Right. And so it was kind of two things on top of each other. Like, you know, you don't have a job. You could probably still kind of plant your own food, but you can't do that if there's no water, right? Right. Let's make a situation even worse. Exactly. So it is an estimated that 500,000 people were left homeless. Oh, man. And this is over the whole area of the Great Plains that was affected by the, um, the Dust Bowl, not just Oklahoma. There was a mass exodus of the areas of Oklahoma and Texas Panhandle and the other uh, really harshly, well, let me see what kind of word, the other regions of the Great Plains that were like mostly affected. And during this time, it's kind of weird. The term Oki mm-hmm. was coined by Ben Reddick, who was a journalist. And this is a kooky fact. This mass exodus is believed to be the largest migration in American history in the shortest amount of time. That's so crazy. That's wild. So it is wild to think that. Um, one storm alone was reported as tearing apart 350 homes. Just one of those storms. So literally, if you didn't lose your home to foreclosure Mm -hmm. and you lived in a Dust Bowl area, you probably lost it to a Dust Bowl storm. Mm. 
uh, families would pile trucks and cars up as high as they could with their belongings, and this led to that term, jalopies. Ah, yes. Uh, many families in Oklahoma and Kansas fell ill to, like you mentioned, the dust pneumonia or even malnutrition. There was no food. Right. They were starving. Between the years of 1930 and 1940, 3.5 million people left the Great Plains. Wow. In one year alone, just one, and I can't remember what year it was. I didn't write it down. I'm sorry about that. 86,000 people reportedly moved to California, just the state of California. Oh, my goodness. Now, here's the kooky fact. This number of migrants was larger than that of the 1840s gold rush. Oh, wow. Migrants were corned Okies or Arkies or Texies, but only Okies really stuck. Mm -hmm. And this usually meant that the person was unhoused and unemployed, traveling from one of these Dust Bowl-prone areas. Didn't They didn't just all come from Oklahoma, but mm-hmm. if you travel, you could have come from Arkansas, and even though some of them were called Arkies, they'd call you an Okie eventually. Right. Uh, but traveling from these Dust Bowl-prone areas, and even, even if they weren't affected by the Dust Bowl, simply Great Depression areas, mm-hmm. uh, but they were just seeking better opportunities, right. and California was supposed to be that place. And like I just said, like that kooky fact, like, Okie wasn't just an Oklahoman term. It is now. Right. It is now. It was meant to insult all people migrating to California during the Dust Bowl years. I don't really find it that insulting. I know. Like, to <laughs> us, that's not, Okie. that's not insulting. And so I wonder, like, if we were to go and, like, we should talk to our grandmother over Thanksgiving and yeah. see, like, is being called an Okie insulting to you? Well, because have, during her time period, it was. I have a story for you. Okay. So my... Dad worked in the aerospace industry for a very long time, and he would get transferred to, he's he's been in like Seattle, we lived in California twice, other places. So the first time we were living in California, my mom was pregnant with my younger brother. Mm -hmm. I think she'll probably correct me if I'm wrong, (laughs) but it was like, I think she was about like eight months pregnant. And I don't know if she was going to a doctor's appointment or if we were going to the grocery store. But our car still had an Oklahoma license plate because we weren't planning on being there that long. Right. We were going to move back. Well, when we got back out of the store, because, you know, on the old tags, it used to say, like, Oklahoma is okay or, like, something like that. Well, someone had left her a note on the windshield, and it said, if Oklahoma's okay, then why are you still here? And... I'm pretty sure she was like just started crying because oh, she's I like bet. eight months oh, yeah. pregnant. Anything would have made me cry and, when I was. Um, but like it kind of, it makes me think of like that same attitude. Well, you're gonna find out more like how this being an Okie and traveling from Oklahoma, how it really did affect the landscape of California and the population there. So we'll get into it in a little bit. But nevertheless, many families did stay. In the Dust Bowl-torn states, choosing instead to move to less effective counties. So there was, like, from the Oklahoma panhandle, a lot of them moved east towards Oklahoma City and Tulsa and Enid and those towns that were a little bit less prone to it. So another kooky fact. I've got so many kooky facts because so many of this I didn't know. Yeah, I know, right? Um, Yes. So it says that so many families left their farms and were on the move that the proportion of migrants and residence was nearly equal in the Great Plains states. So, 
It was just kind of a weird thing. Huh. It is report. It was reported in the census report in 1939 that of the 116,000 families that had moved to California since 1930s, mm-hmm. when their census, actually only 43% of them were from the southwestern states that had previously been doing farm work. A third of all those people who had moved were actually white-collared professionals. <laughs> And see, and that's it's, interesting. It's portrayed a lot that these quote Okies uh-huh. who were moving from this dust bowl that they were all farmers. When in all actuality, they, they weren't. weren't all farmers. Yeah. You know, huh. that's interesting. Um, Okies were compared to a plague of locusts invading Colorado or California. Sorry, labor camps around California were dubbed Little Oklahomas. Hmm. No, and I think that's maybe maybe that's why we perceived the Dust Bowl happening in such a big area of Oklahoma is because California. It's like they wanted they picked on one state, right? They only picked on Oklahoma. They didn't pick on the other ones. But we're like, if you really look at it, this actually affected way many, like way more of other states than yeah. just our state. Um, here's another uh, kooky fact: in 1937, California passed the Anti-Oki Law. Mm. making it a misdemeanor to bring or assist in bringing any indignant person into the state of California. (gasps) Of course, it was later declared unconstitutional. (laughs) Now, World War II would reverse the fortunes of those, quote, Okies in California. So it all, I mean, it all works out in the end. Uh Uh-huh. Farmers actually tended to fare better when they were looking for work, when they traveled to California. They weren't afraid of the hard work. They they weren't afraid to get their hands dirty. Um, So they would take on being skilled laborers and jobs of that nature, or even farm jobs if they could find them. Mm -hmm. This would eventually lead to those people experiencing a, quote, easier climb up the ladder. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their white-collar counterparts, though, had a tougher time entering into workforces that they weren't accustomed to. Uh, so they'd have to go into like, you know, manual labor or skilled workers mm. and, you know, they weren't used to that. Right. By the end, though, most of the people who left the Dust Bowl regions were better off than those who decided to stay. Oh, interesting. Another kooky fact. Many migrants did decide to move back to their Dust Bowl home. However, one-eighth of California's population is of Oki heritage. Interesting. Many of the transplants actually flourished in California. Towns like Bakersfield, that's a huge town in California, mm-hmm. San Joaquin Valley, mm-hmm. truly were little Oklahomans. They brought their religious faiths, fr- chicken fried steak, twangy accent, and folky country music, and to this day, still reflect that. Oh, that's so interesting. So the next part I wanted to get into, this is part four, right? Yeah. Is the... So the last part I think that we'll get into for this show is, or for this episode, is the government's response. Okay. So this is happening. You would hope your government's going to come in and try to figure something out and try to help these people. The government's greatly expanded participation in land management and soil conservation was an important result of this disaster. Because first and foremost, not only was this an economic disaster, this was a ecological disaster. Right. This led to the creation of many different government offices. The Soil Conservation Service, now known as the Natural Resources Conservation Service, um, it's an office of the Department of Agriculture, was tasked with generating detailed soil maps and taking area 
aerial photos of the affected areas. So a lot of the pictures we get are from actual government officers going out and doing this dirty work, literally. Right. The United States Forest Service's Prairie States Forestry Project. Man, that's a mouthful. That was a lot, yeah. Planted trees to create a shelter belt to help stop erosion. And I had to look up what a shelter belt was. Mm -hmm. A shelter belt is a line of trees or shrubs planted to protect an area, especially a farm field, from strong winds and the erosion they cause. Then we have the Resettlement Administration, which later became the Farm Security Administration, who encouraged small farm owners to resettle on other lands if they lived in the drier parts of the plains. So during President Franklin D. Roosevelt's first 100 days in office in 1933, his administration quickly initiated programs to conserve soil and restore the nation's ecological balance. And we all know that his initiative was called the New Deal. Mm-hmm. And so not only did this cover, you know, economic relief for the Great Depression, but this also was hopefully was covering ecological relief from the Dust Bowl. Right. Think about his first hundred days. He's got a Great Depression and a Dust oh, Bowl. Oh, man. I can't imagine. So this included new constraints and safeguards on the baking industry and efforts to reinflate the economy after prices had fallen sharply. Congress passed the Soil Conservation and Domestic Allotment Act in 1936, requiring landowners to share the allocated government subsidies with the laborers who worked on their farms. So you're getting a cut of it from the government. You've got to share this with your workers. Mm. To stabilize prices, the government paid farmers and ordered more than 6 million pigs to be slaughtered as part of the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Wow. And this was kind of, they were helping to pay these farmers off because they weren't getting the money for the pork that they would have gotten in the past. But also, now they have food to To feed feed the hungry. The Federal Surplus Relief Corporation, or FSRC, was established to regulate crop and other surpluses. So... Farmers that were able to grow things, when they surplused the, these items, the government would take them and then pass them out to the needy people. Um, these, I, these included cotton, apples, beans, canned beef, flour, and pork. And like I said, you know, they killed millions of pigs. And yeah. this was a way to help the families that were starving so that they could eat, so that they could find meaningful work. I mean, you get it. Yeah. You get it. In 1935, it saw the creation of the Drought Relief Services who purchased cattle that would have died due to starvation. Farmers at first really weren't fans of giving up their herds. However, it kept most of them from having to file for bankruptcy because they weren't selling the cows because nobody right. could buy them. Right. Here's a kooky fact. In this program's infancy where they were buying the cattle, 50% of the animals purchased were deemed unfit for human consumption. Mm. So, in my mind... There's probably some sort of zoo animals that were eating mighty fine during those days. Oh, I'm sure. The Civilian Conservation Corps was also put into place. Um, They were there to plant the Great Plains Shelter Belt, which was a huge belt of more than 200 million trees that stretched from Canada all the way to Abilene, Texas. I was going to ask you where that was. Yeah. Um, this was simply to break the wind, hold water in the soil, and hold the soil in place. Interesting. I didn't know any of that. Yes. This is also the group that educated farmers on what soil erosion was and conservation, the importance of crop rotation, strip farming, which is a method of farming which involves cultivating a field partitioned into long, narrow strips, um, 
which were alternated in like a crop rotation system. Mm-hmm. And all of this like makes sense to me, but simply because I have an agriculture degree. Mm-hmm. And so I had to take these classes and before then I would have never known what any of this meant, but now mm-hmm. I do. Uh, there's also contour farming, which um, is a farming practice of plowing and or planting across a slope following its elevation contour lines. And then of course, terracing. In 1937, the government started paying farmers $1 per acre, which is about $22 today, to adopt these new planting and plowing methods. Mm -hmm. So if you do it this way, we're going to pay you, Mm -hmm. which is, and that was a good time. 1938, due to these new methods, soil erosion was reduced by 65%. I thought that was a huge number. That is a huge number. By the end of 1939, finally... Regular rain had returned to the region, which ultimately is what they really, really needed. Right. And it is thought that by the end of the Dust Bowl, because of these programs, the government and the farmers were able to maintain a good relationship. And I think that's where we should end the episode Mm -hmm. today, Mm -hmm. um, that the government did really help uh, to try to rescue not only those affected by the Great Depression, but those especially affected by the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. Right, because, uh, you know, that's not something you think about really. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes you think of them as just two separate right, events. Right, But in reality, they were happening at the exact yes. same time. And I could definitely see how people on the East Coast or the West Coast who weren't really affected by the Dust Bowl would probably not see it as two different or do they would see it as two different things they wouldn't see it as simultaneous but i think definitely as oklahomans and probably texans and kansas kansas those south central yes states we kind of lots of parts of nebraska and and colorado like we see those two things as coinciding with each other right and um it's just it's fascinating to see it's just fascinating how it all happened, how it all played out, and um, that really people live to tell about that. There's still states today that yeah. were still that were still there. There's still places. There's still towns today mm-hmm. that are still flourishing, right? Even after. Well, and a couple of interesting facts. I didn't mention this in in my notes, but like when this was going on, there were some places like the ones that were affected the most. You know, they had, I think I read in Kansas, one town in Kansas, they had like this certain time of the day, like the bells would ring mm-hmm. and they would all stop whatever they were doing and like pray for right, rain. Right. And then like another place, you know, a lot of people would hire rainmakers. Yes. Yes. And they would like blast dynamite up into the sky, <laughs> hoping to like <laughs> strike the, the sky shake and the rain it out open. of it. Shake the rain out of it. And then when, when something did happen, you know, they kind of equated that with, oh, it's because he made the rain. And it's right. like, you know. Yes. Oh my gosh. But anyway, I think it's, it's desperate times, you know. Yeah, it, absolutely. Desperate times call. I mean, you're, you're going to try everything. You're right. going to try everything. Right. So, Yeah. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, maybe you have a loved one who had experience with the Dust Bowl. We would love to hear from you. We would love it. Please reach out to us on all of our socials or even on email at curiouscousins at gmail.com is where you can get us on email. And of course, at curiouscousinsok on all major social media platforms. Uh, We ask that you do review, like, and follow us on your favorite listening platform. And of course we're found on everything like Apple and Spotify and Amazon music and all the others. So we just really appreciate all the support that you guys have given us. Um, and we'll be back with our part two 
next week. Next week. So Might ju- be a little shorter, but yeah, that's okay. that's okay. So Jess, tell them what to keep it. Keep it kooky and spooky. Bye. Bye.